Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 208-1 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about your mysterious feedback on some of our recent episodes. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So, Jimmy, why are we doing this episode? Well, it's been a while since we've done listener feedback. The last episode we did it for was Life on Mars, which was quite a while ago. And the feedback segments have been popular. Uh, We've been getting a lot more feedback these days. I mean, we've grown to an audience of about 100,000 listeners per episode. And so that means more feedback. At the same time, the episodes have been, uh, you know, uh, a little bit longer as well. And it's been harder to find places to put the feedback without making the episodes even larger than they are. So I decided we'd try experimenting with making feedback specials where we take the feedback from a number of recent episodes and put them together and then drop them into the feed as a bonus episode. Um, Also with the, uh, all the scripting work I do and with the extra feedback to go through, which comes in from multiple different sources. I mean, we have Facebook and email and Twitter and Patreon and YouTube and all these different sources. Um, I I was finding it hard to go go to each one of those sources every week to collect the feedback. And so uh, we also got a feedback volunteer. Uh, so I'd lo- I want to thank Mysterious Feedback Coordinator Rob L. And welcome him to the Mysterious Irregulars that help with the show. Uh, I should say we're not planning on replacing the Friday episodes, certainly not at at this point, but we'll be including uh, feedback specials as bonus episodes, and we'll have some catching up to do. So we won't get all the way up to the present in this episode, but we'll make a good bit of progress. Excellent. So now that we've added video to the podcast, uh, some listeners have started sending feedback in video form. And just like we've been putting audio feedback at the top of the list for feedback to include, we'll be doing the same for video. So here's our first piece of video feedback from the Minifig Brothers. Hi, Michael. I'm Gabriel. I'm Mark. I'm Math after Gabriel says his, you go. Okay, Math. Okay. Hi, Michael. I'm Gabriel. Um. <laughs> I'm Matthew. No. And I'm Mark. And, and we are the, the Mini Big, Big Brothers. Brothers. We're big fans of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. We love you so much. If you yes. want to go right to the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Bye, Jimmy and Dom. Bye. Bye. <laughs> and that's really cute. And want to thank the Minifig Brothers for uh, uh, their support and for urging people to support the program. Um, they have a YouTube channel. And with their father's permission, I included that clip. And we'll have a link to their YouTube channel where they do Lego reviews. As you might be able to tell from their Lego oriented logo in the video. Um, and speaking of Legos, we have a new piece of fan art that was submitted by a listener named Noah. And Noah writes this Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. As a small thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world, I made a Lego Jimmy to add to the fan art shelf. 
I hope you enjoy it, and if nothing else, I'm happy to give Jimmy a pipe he probably doesn't have already. Stay mysterious! And thank you very much, Noah. Um, as you can see, if you're watching the video version, I have added Lego Jimmy to the uh, fan art shelf. And I, indeed, I don't have a tiny plastic pipe. I didn't even know they made those for Legos. Uh, back in my day, they did not have the kind of, when I was growing up, we just had square rectangular blocks. Um, they didn't have all the amazing things that they do now. So I admire the creativity. It's another version of me. I'm wearing the cowboy hat and the white suit and everything. Um, and it's, it's really inventive. I, I, I appreciate that. And I want to thank you. And it will be on the shelf in the, in the future. And I was pointing to it right there where it is in <laughs> case you uh, want to get a spatial sense of that. So thank you very much, Noah. Excellent. So, and I, I love hearing the kids. I love it when kids imitate me uh, on the yeah. <laughs> in their feedback. It just it cracks me up. We, we've had a few people submit uh, kids saying my usual lines, and I, I love I love to hear that. So send that in. I love to hear that from you folks. All right, our next feedback comes from a patron, uh, Justin Weiler. Sorry, Justin, if I've mispronounced your name via Patreon. He said, uh, "My wife and I recently listened to the third Secret of Fatima episodes, and it got us thinking about the current situation in Ukraine." I know many people believe the secrets and implications of the Fatima secrets have been fulfilled, but any thoughts about what Our Lady said to the shepherd children of Fatima and is what and what is happening right now with Russia clearly spreading its errors and potential threat of nuclear war? Well, um, what the I don't think there's a direct relationship um, because the evidence we have indicates that the Fatima apparitions uh, secrets have all been fulfilled. And the promise was that the world would eventually be given a period of peace. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, we've had that for the last 30 more than 30 years now. But Fatima did not promise that the peace would last forever or that Russia would never again be, embark on an expansionist campaign. And so we could be on the other side of that now. Having said that, I think it's reasonable to appeal to Our Lady of Fatima for peace in the, uh, the Russia-Ukraine situation and for world peace in general. So we're going to be talking about that. I had originally planned to do the Cuban Missile Crisis this October because it's the 60th anniversary. And the Cuban Missile Crisis, for people who may not be aware, occurred in 1962. And it was, I don't think this is necessarily quite true, but it's often been regarded as the closest we ever came to nuclear war. And it was a very tense period of about two weeks. And... um, And we came out of the other side of it, okay, we managed to avoid nuclear war on that occasion. And with all the saber rattling, the nuclear saber rattling that uh, President Putin has been doing, a lot of people have said this is the most dangerous time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I don't really think that's true. I think the 1980s, especially during the Able Archer incident, which we'll talk about in the future, that was actually more dangerous. Um, But... uh, I decided to move up the Cuban Missile Crisis and not wait until October. So we will have a two-part episode on the Cuban Missile Crisis coming up, during which we will discuss uh, the connections to Our Lady of Fatima, nuclear war, consecrating Russia and Ukraine and things like that. But at this point, I'm optimistic that we will not have a nuclear war 
And I, uh, I value the fact that Pope Francis decided to consecrate Russia and the Ukraine uh, to Our Lady of Fatima. I think that will definitely help. Excellent. So uh, he who must not be named on a family podcast, yes, that's the name, on YouTube writes, I enjoy listening to Mysterious World every week. The episodes on Marian apparitions are among my favorite. I'm Eastern Orthodox, but currently attend my local Catholic parish because I cannot get to my Orthodox one. Your explanations help me better understand what the Catholic Church believes and doesn't believe about apparitions. And I appreciate that when you are frank about the facts and thus frankly state why an unapproved apparition is unapproved. You handle the Fatima matter well so that your explanation was not offensive to Eastern Orthodox Christians, many of whom resent the way Catholics generally present Fatima, forgetting that the Eastern Orthodox have been there the whole time and suffered under Russian communism. Let us pray earnestly for the reunion of our churches. Thank you very much, uh, He Who Must Not Be Named on a Family Podcast. I, it had not occurred to me, um, because I try not to be offensive to anybody, it hadn't occurred to me that that uh, Catholics would be explaining Fatima in a way that could be offensive to Orthodox. But upon thinking about it, yeah, I can see exactly how that could happen. So I, on behalf of Catholics who have done so unwittingly, I apologize on their behalf because that's what those who have done so unwittingly would would want done. Um, and I agree. Let us earnestly pray for for the reunion of our churches. All right. So our next bit of feedback is going to be coming from the episode 181 on D.B. Cooper. And the first one is an audio feedback from Aussie. Here it goes. Hello, Jimmy and Dom. I'm a college student who really appreciates um, listening to Mysterious World as something to think about outside of my studies and to connect my studies to as an engineer and pre-veterinary student. I really appreciate Jimmy's logical approach and research and views from all angles. Um, it's very satisfying as a listener to know that that level of research has been done. And as a college student, I know that kind of research is required academically. So I understand why Jimmy puts in all that work and I really appreciate it. Um, I'm giving you feedback on your episode on D.B. Cooper. I'm a Marvel fan and I watched the Loki TV series, so I was really, really excited when I saw Jimmy was doing an episode on D.B. Cooper. I greatly appreciated the inclusion of the relevant audio clip from the series, and I appreciated learning more about D.B. Cooper, especially that his name isn't D.B. Cooper, it's Dan Cooper, and learning the background on uh, an event that I actually did not know that much about prior to the seeing that reference in the Loki TV series and then listening to this podcast. Uh, I tend to agree with Jimmy's theory that he was military, given that he knew how far it was from the airport to the nearest military base. But I agree with the idea that he's probably a cargo or was a cargo loader and not a paratrooper. And I actually have a question for Jimmy that's related to Marvel that I wanted to put in here for my siblings. And we came up with this question in the car and it's related to the character Vision, um, especially in the movie Avengers Infinity War. He seems to be developing a conscience and independent thought beyond that of his programming. Tony Stark also mentions that he's evolving and we see that he's starting to like take on a fully human appearance and think for himself and make decisions. So the question is, if Vision or another similar AI robot becomes capable of that level of independent thought and reasoning, 
at what point would it be necessary or would it be necessary at all for God to give the AI a soul? So it would be an actual rational being. Okay, so this question comes up periodically. Uh, before I answer it, I'll mention I'll mention a, another bit of Marvel trivia uh, or Marvel lore. Um, so growing up, I would sometimes read Marvel comics. I was more of a DC fan, but I'd sometimes read Marvel. And I knew that the Vision had originally, who was this android member of the Avengers, I knew that he originally had been uh, another character uh, in the golden age, he was the human torch. So there was a human torch before Johnny storm of the fantastic four. Johnny storm is the second human torch and the robot that became the vision was the original human torch. And recently I went back and read the very first Marvel comic, Marvel comics, number one from 1939, which features the origin stories of four characters. Uh, one of them is the vision. Uh, one of them is the human torch. One of them is uh, Namor, the Submariner. One of them is a, a character called the angel who is not the angel from the, from the X-Men. And he's just a detective who wears a costume and calls himself the angel. And so he's the one that's kind of fallen through the cracks. And the last one is Kazar of the Savage Land. And in reading the Human Torch's origin, he's this robot that has been designed in such a way that he accidentally bursts into flame upon contact with air. This was a design flaw. And his creator, Dr. Horton, is trying to figure out a way to fix it. But um, the the robot is captured by criminals who try to put it into to criminal purposes and it's got a conscience so it is it is it is determined to resist the criminals and thwart their plans and wow does he just kill people <laughs> i mean this is this is this is not this is not your modern low violence ethic superhero <laughs> um he i mean he not only kills people but he kills them brutally like um, some of the henchmen of the main villain have like d dove into a swimming pool to get away from the torch, you know, because if he gets in the water, he won't be exposed to the air and his flame will shut off. So what so they've 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 gone underwater to escape him. And so what the torch does is he boils the water in the swimming pool. Ooh. And yeah, um, henchman soup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Wow, was that intense. But I just recently read that. Namor is also, I mean, he's always been an anti-hero, but he also right out the gate, he's killing people on his mission. Hmm. Um, has divers coming down and he just, he thinks they're robots because they are in these old diving bell or diving helmet type suits. So he'll just like crush their diving helmets and stuff and Ooh. stab them and things like that. So uh, the in 1939, comics were... Uh, Comics were a little more violent than Super Friends. In <laughs> um, any way, to uh, to address the uh, and this is it, for people who want to read this, uh, it's available in like a Kindle version uh, on Amazon, so and you can get it for not expensive. In terms of the question, well, AIs can evolve. Um, they can that can happen accidentally because uh, they're subject to forces just like we are. I mean, radiation will change our genes and that can result in mutations that are sometimes beneficial to get passed on. In the same way, radiation can change the bits on a com 
in a computer's memory or programming. Uh, sometimes it's not even accidental, though, because they have they sometimes program AIs to alter. I think actually always these days they program AIs to adjust their own programming, and they also use a kind of it's not exactly natural selection among AIs, but it's very similar. It's a form of artificial selection where they will random. This is how, for example, YouTube uh, decides on what algorithms it will use to show you videos. Uh, They take a a bunch of copies of a successful algorithm and then they make random changes in them and let them loose and see which algorithms attract more views. And then they take the ones that attracted fewer views and get rid of those. And then they, they copy the ones that succeeded and then they make new changes in them. And so you have this... Uh, random mutation followed by artificial selection that causes the algorithms to evolve and get better at sucking you into wasting time on YouTube. And uh, and they don't even know how the algorithms are doing it. Um, they just know this algorithm is, because they're so complex, no human has gone through it line by line and figured out every subroutine in the algorithm. Um, they just know that, hey, this algorithm does what we want, so we are going to let it breed and reproduce itself. Um, having said that, uh, so it's true that that AIs can, can evolve, um, but souls are for living things. And um, the explanation, I mean, going all the way back to Aristotle, the explanation of what a soul is, is it's the thing that makes something alive. And so if all you've got is an AI that's manipulating information on a on a silicon based machine or some other kind of machine, it doesn't look like the machine is alive and the AI is just programming. The AI itself is not alive. And so no matter how complex it got and no matter what kind of conscience it would evolve, God would not have to, so far as I can see, give it a soul because souls are for living things. And this is a complex thinking thing, but it's not a complex thinking living thing. There's There's been, um, we recently did an episode on Animal Afterlife where we looked at the kind of association between soul that survives death and rational soul, um, and which has been a kind of common assumption that people in in our culture have that you either don't have a soul if you're not a rational being like a human, or at least you don't have a soul that would survive death. And, and that needs to be challenged. So I think we need to be careful about associating intelligence with soulishness. Soulishness is really more about being alive and intelligence is more about intelligence. Okay. Uh, Paul Vidmar uh, comes via Patreon with a, a more feedback on our D.B. Cooper episode and says, I got to thinking about this a little bit. A few items come to mind. First, would it have been possible for Mr. Cooper to have brought on board warmer clothes to change into prior to jumping to better weather the cold? Second, could his bomb have been just road flares he could set off on the way down to alert an accomplice and give away to track? Third, it was noted that he may have picked the date so that it was a four-day weekend, which would give credibility to him being American versus Canadian, as Canadians do not celebrate Thanksgiving on the same date we do. I have my thoughts. It was a Canadian immigrant that worked for Boeing and alerted a pickup accomplice using road flares. 
Well, uh, as far as warmer clothes, yes, uh, he he could have a change of warmer clothes, especially if he had an accomplice that planted something in the overhead compartment. Um, but we know he didn't change before jumping because he was seen tying the money bags around himself and he had his regular clothes on as he was tying the money bag. So what he would have had to do is take whatever the accomplice left for him and either hold it or strap it also to his body as he made the jump. But it's possible. Um, I don't have evidence that that didn't happen, Um, but I also don't have evidence that it did. It's just it's it's interesting speculation. As far as flares uh, being what he had with the bomb, it's true. They could have been flares because flares can look like sticks of dynamite. So can other things, you know, candles wrapped in red construction paper. Um, but it could have been flares, and he could have brought them to use to signal an accomplice. But the challenge is he didn't know exactly where he was going to be jumping. I mean, within, I mean, they didn't even take his original flight plan which would have taken them to Mexico City. Um, And so he ended up jumping in an area that he really didn't, couldn't know in advance where he was going to land. And flares are only really good for short distance communication with someone. They have to be able to see the flare. And so um, if he's in a random location in the dark, I'm not sure how much an accomplice on the ground would be able to find would be, I I think the odds are kind of low that the accomplice would be, would be within the radius of where you could see the flare. Uh, In terms of uh, American Thanksgiving, yes, that shows he had knowledge of American customs. And so he likely lived in America and took advantage of the four day weekend, whether or not he was an American or a Canadian national. And I know, Dom, you had some thoughts on whether he had an accomplice as well. Did you want to share those? Yeah, I felt like that it was possible that there was someone else on the plane who, like you mentioned, brought aboard a carry on that had uh, the other you know, change of clothes or other materials that he could have used after jumping. And that person you know, leaves it on board when they're you know, getting being evacuated. And then Cooper goes and finds it and uses that and uh, or takes it with him, like you mentioned, and uh, uses it to get out of the forest. I mean, he could have had a radio, could have had all kinds of things in the in an accomplice's bag that wasn't in his own carry on. So um, it's interesting. And given what you said in the episode that the FBI didn't quite follow up on all that sort of thing, I I feel like it might have been possible. Indeed. Excellent. So uh, patron Rob Leonardi writes on Facebook, My theory about the missing money in one of the packs found at the beach was that he probably made a fire on the beach and used the money for kindling. Did they ever do any more excavations of that site? Well, they did do additional excavations, um, and Wikipedia has a summary of those. Uh, Nothing that led to a break in the case, obviously, but they did do additional excavations. As far as the kindling theory, wow, that would be an expensive fire. (laughs) <laughs> and that would be a lot of effort to to get kindling for your fire. But if someone gets cold enough and they're shivering to try to the shiver reflexes to try to generate motion. So it raises our body, our core body temperature. So so we don't freeze to death. And if someone is out there in the woods and they're underclothed and shivering, they might decide, let's uh, let's use a little bit of this for kindling. <laughs> 
Uh, Damon Pierman on Facebook writes, I love listening to this podcast and spent like two to three months binging and I'm all caught up. I've heard a lot about D.B. Cooper. I still learned something from this episode and wouldn't mind having another on candidates of who it might be. So far, my favorite episodes have been all those related to remote viewing. And will you guys be doing an episode on Eucharistic miracles? Nothing is weirder than bread and wine become becoming physical flesh and blood. We will be uh, doing an episode on Eucharistic miracles, so that's coming up. Uh, glad you've been enjoying the show, and uh, we may in the future have a, um, a D.B. Cooper candidates uh, episode because some of them have interesting stories. Uh, Paul Solkowski writes on Facebook, D.B. Cooper, the man, the myth, the legend, the destitute. This hijacking could be an act of desperation. His attire and disposition showed him to be a man of refinement who was entering financially hard times. The lack of missing persons reports implies no one to file the report and no support network upon which he could live. Well, it it could signify that that he didn't his he didn't get reported as a missing person when if he died, he didn't get reported as a missing person because he uh, didn't have a support network that he was plugged into. On the other hand, it could indicate he got away and was just fine and uh, took the four day weekend to get back to his home, wherever that was, went back to his job on Monday and nobody ever knew that uh, he had been missing. Yeah, right. Lindsay Sant on Facebook wrote, everyone knows it was Loki. Mystery solved. Oh, yeah. But one, solving one mystery leads to another. So if it was Loki, what was the bet with Thor? <laughs> Got to know that now. That's what, right. was the, what was the wager? What was at stake? What would have happened if Loki hadn't lost the bet? You know, I mean, one mystery just breeds others. And uh, greetings to uh, the Catholics of Oz and let science. Uh, Lindsay is host of uh, of those shows. So uh, Rob Murphy sends an email. Just a word of thanks to you. My wife and I are empty nesters now in Oregon. And having not had a television for 25 years, we either read a lot or listen to podcasts at night. After listening to you on Catholic Answers for some time, I finally dialed in Mysterious World in the past week. My wife and I sit together in front of the fire and have listened to Our Lady of Cabejo and just last night, D.B. Cooper. Very interesting and romantic. Reminds me of what couples did in the 30s and 40s before the advent of the boob tube and when the divorce rate was low. Thanks for doing your part in saving marriages around the world. Well, thank you so much, Rob. And that's such a sweet story. And I uh, hope that you and your wife continue to enjoy the show. Uh, Jason Durth writes via email. I've been a longtime listener of your Secrets of Star Trek podcast, but recently discovered this podcast. My first exposure was your D.B. Cooper episode. I have some thoughts about what might have happened. Is it possible that Dan Cooper had an accomplice? Could it be possible that one of the passengers who may have been working with Cooper had a carry-on bag? Something that this person stored in an overhead bin that would not have been searched upon entry to the airplane? That would have contained items such as a one-piece jumpsuit, heavier shoes, maybe even a jump helmet. Well, um, a jump helmet would, I mean, if it was a rigid body jump helmet, like a motorcycle helmet, that probably wouldn't have, probably would have been a little more obvious if it was in a carry-on. Or, or it wouldn't have gone into a rigid body carry-on, um, maybe a bowling ball bag. Uh, but what we can say is he didn't change before he jumped. So if he had such an accomplice that was providing him with, with additional equipment, he would have had to get to the ground with it successfully before being able to use it. Right. And uh, thanks, Jason. That was similar to what my uh, thoughts. So we were thinking alike on that one. Uh, Keith Adkins on YouTube wrote, it's amusing how Jimmy never misses an opportunity to bash the U.S. government and media. 
somebody has to do it. I mean, <laughs> somebody has to warn the public. And I don't always bash the government. I do give the government credit for various things. Um, the media, on the other hand, is just incompetent and deserves it. So there right. you are. Right. Michael Fitzgerald writes on YouTube. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. Love the show. I found it about a year ago when Jimmy was on Pints with Aquinas and have binged many of the older episodes. I have loved mysteries since I was a kid, and I was wondering if Jimmy thinks the saved will know the truth about these mysteries. I know we will all be more than satisfied with the beatific vision, but if God can let us know what happened to D.B. Cooper, if Bigfoot and UFOs are real, and what really happened to JFK, etc., it would be a cherry on top. Well, what I can say with certainty is that if you need to know who D.B. Cooper was to be happy in heaven, then you will know who D.B. Cooper was to be happy in heaven. I think, I, yeah, <laughs> I think I agree. I'm going to need to know about those UAPs. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, um, and I would assume I don't know that we'll I don't know that we will know the answers to these mysteries, but I'm pretty confident that we will know more than we do now. And if we still want to know uh, about these and, you know, I I, I, God, I, I don't think God's going to keep them secret from us. So I, I cautiously. Optim I'm cautiously optimistic that we will be able to and be interested in knowing all this stuff and thus be able to know it. Awesome. Uh, Peace Brother on YouTube writes, here in the Pacific Northwest at the end of November at 6 p.m. in the nearly perpetual pouring rain, it is so dark that one can barely see the road they're driving with high intensity, high beam lights. If Cooper jumped from 10,000 feet in these conditions, well, God help him. He would probably not have seen the ground after he jumped and upon landing would have had a very high probability of crashing into or getting caught up in a 150 foot Douglas fir or cedar tree. Ain't no money going to get nobody out of a predicament like that. Excellent program. And once again, I learned something I had never heard of before. And indeed, it was a dangerous jump, especially in the dark, um, because of uh, navigating to a safe landing when it's when it's very dim. Um, but it's not impossible. So, you know, the there's there's a good argument that he would not have survived. But there's also a good since the money never got used so far as we can tell, not in quantity. But there's also a good argument that he did survive since that since we didn't have missing person missing persons reports that fit him and a body was never found. All right. All right. Our next feedback comes from our episode 182, which was a weird questions episode. Paul Leone wrote on YouTube. I love these episodes. I've got a question for you. If humanity ever encounters another intelligent species in outer space or the inner earth or whatnot, would someone from said species be potentially eligible to be elected pope, assuming they met the other qualifications, or is that office is explicitly limited to humans? So uh, just let me let me remind you that the space pope says don't date robots. <laughs> and if you if you don't know what I'm referring to there, uh, you can go on YouTube and, and search for Futurama don't date robots. But the space pope has very, very wise words of wisdom. Don't date robots. Um, OK, so is it is the office of pope explicitly limited to humans? No, um, there's nothing in the Bible that says that. There's nothing in in the church fathers that says that. There's nothing in the uh, in the magisterium that says that. But it may be implicit. Um, it may be part of the deposit of faith that in order to be the vicar of Christ, you need to be a human. 
like Christ was human. Um, but if so, that's something the magisterium, that's a question the magisterium hasn't addressed yet. So we really can't say. It, we'd have to first discover intelligent aliens. Then we'd have to, then they would have to want to be Christian. Then they would have to want to be ordained to the priesthood. You know, they'd have to have vocations to the priesthood. And then we'd have to, and we'd have to face each of those questions as it comes. Um, hypothetically, uh, it, it, uh, even if you say that, even if you say that the papacy is restricted to humans, it may not be humans in the biological sense. One of the things that, and I was recently talking with a, a well-known Catholic philosopher about this, um, you know, the classic definition of human is just a rational animal. And so if we met aliens and they were rational animals, on some historic definitions, they would be humans. They wouldn't be humans in the modern biological sense, but they would be humans in the philosophical, theological sense, potentially. Mm. Um, so so it, this is really an open question. Um, but for more, if Paul hasn't already listened to it or hasn't listened to it in a while, he might want to go back and listen to episode 55 on... Uh, aliens and religion, where we I don't we don't discuss the issue of the papacy, but we do discuss ordination in that and baptism and similar things. So some of the, the same principles apply. It's an open question, and we're not there yet, so we can only speculate. And you can find that episode if you go to mysterious.fm/slash fifty-five, and that'll take you right to the page on our website. Yeah, that's a new way we have for uh, listeners to quickly get to individual episodes. Mysterious.fm slash episode number. Yes. Our next feedback comes uh, from episode 183, which was patron questions. And patron Peter Epps uh, responded to that episode by saying, as a husband to a fantastic, a fantastic wife, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Uh, so he we were discussing aphantasia, which is the... A condition that some folks have where they don't form mental images the way uh, most people do. So if you say, picture this, you're standing in a field and the sun is shining down. And most people will create an internal mental image of themselves in a field with the sun shining down. But aphantasiacs don't. Um, and they typically... Have, grow up not realizing that other people have these additional mental images and they interpret um, statements like the one I just made, you know, picture yourself as some kind of metaphor hmm. um, because it doesn't correspond to their experience. So we we talked about that in the episode and I hope, uh, Peter, that it was uh, a useful discussion for you and your wife um, and aphantasiacs are out there. Uh, in fact, our next piece of feedback illustrates that. Yes, this comes from Carol Macri on Facebook, who wrote, didn't know aphantasia was a named thing. For years, I've asked my friends and relatives, do you think in words or in pictures? I cannot relate at all to the idea of movies in my head, but it seems like most people can. I'm interested in the relationship to PTSD. I can count the number of my vivid visual memories on one hand, but they're associated with extremely negative emotional experiences. Otherwise, it hasn't been a problem, except for the fact that I would just have to say, shoot me now, if my life depended on identifying someone I've met once or twice. Well, a lot of people don't have good memories for people they've met once or twice. So 
a lot of people would be in the same boat there. Um, having internal visual experiences doesn't mean that they that you have a perfect memory or a photographic memory. Um, it, but uh, I I I can imagine the moment, you know, uh, Carol, where uh, where you first discovered, oh, other people are experiencing something different. I recently uh, was present at such a moment. I, I was taking a, uh, an online class and one of the, uh, and we were talking about aphantasia briefly. It just happened to come up. And one of the class members turned out to be aphantasiac. And he, this was his awakening moment. Um, he, where he realized, wow, there is something else really going on. This isn't all just a metaphor because as the class discussion proceeded, it became clear to him that, yeah, other people really do have these internal, internal visual images. And he was asking what that's like. And I said, well, for me, it's like a holodeck. I can imagine this 3d environment around me, whatever I want, and I can walk around in it and stuff like that. And he was like, wow, that was just mind blowing to him that I, that, you know, I had this internal mental holodeck. Um, so, uh, so it's, it's, it's definitely out there and, um, whether or not people have these mental images, they make valuable contributions to society. In fact, one of the head guys at Pixar, you know, which is all about making visual media entertainment, um, is also aphantasiac. It hasn't stopped him. Wow. Our next feedback comes from moving about and manipulating objects on YouTube. I love that name. (laughs) Yes. So regarding Jimmy's synesthesia, if he were to mix two colors mentally or physically, would the resulting color be mathematically correct? Or said another way, would the sum of two numbers equate to a color that is in fact a mix of the colors assigned to the two add-ins? Because that would be not only helpful, but amazing. Well, it would be amazing, but it's not my my synesthesia. So for a quick refresher, synesthesia is where you it reflexively you don't you don't think about this consciously. You reflexively associate one sensory modality with another sensory modality. The one of the most common forms is called color grapheme synesthesia. A grapheme is something you write like a letter or a number. And so color grapheme synesthesia is where you associate reflexively um, certain colors with certain letters and numbers. And this is one of the forms of synesthesia that I've got. I, I have several on what's called a polysynesthy. And um, in in my color grapheme synesthesia, there are patterns like A is A is red, B is orange, C is yellow, D is a kind of darker yellow. And you can see how for the first four letters, we're kind of proceeding down the number line, not the number line, the color, the color spectrum, you know, red, orange, yellow. But then E is brown and which is not on the on the color spectrum. And F is gray, and that's not on the color spectrum. And um, and so there are these little stretches where there's a pattern, but but there's no systematic uh, structure to it all. And in the case of numbers, it it doesn't follow the laws of color addition. So, for example, for me, one is white and three is purple. And it's the three is the only purple character for me. Is there no other letters or numbers that are purple? Um, Well, white one plus three is four. 
But for me, four is sea green. Mm. And white plus purple does not equal sea green. Also, four, it was it, with the number four, four is sea green. So four plus four is eight. And that would be sea green plus sea green, which you would think would just be sea green. But for me, eight is orange. So it would be awesome, but it's not the way my synesthesia works. <laughs> All right. Our next feedback comes from episodes 184 and 80, 185, which were about Pearl Harbor. Uh, and Greg Winters wrote on Facebook, one of the best episodes so far. Never knew the behind the scenes history of Pearl Harbor. Fascinating and also very scary. Thank you, Greg. Glad you enjoyed it. It's uh, always fascinating to learn what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, then John Haley also wrote on Facebook, I did some research on White. You indicated that you would have uh, have a future podcast on him post-war. Looking forward to listening. I read that he died of a heart attack and also drug overdose two days after the hearing. Both causes were in the same article. Good luck on your research. Thank you. And yes, it is debated whether uh, Harry Dexter White died naturally or not. Then uh, Nicholas... Jagno on Facebook writes, there is a possible U.S. saint who was involved in the Japanese Pacific campaign following the Pearl Harbor attack. As Jimmy mentioned, there were other attacks across the Pacific in the hours that followed the surprise attack in Hawaii. One of the attacks hit Clark Field Air Base in the Philippines. At Clark Field was an army chaplain, Father Verbis Lafleur, who was born in my hometown. His cause for canonization was opened by the Diocese of Lafayette, Louisiana, and the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops expressed its support for the cause. He and other prisoners died on a hell ship that was sunk by an American submarine. The hell ships were not marked as carrying POWs or non-combatants, so American forces didn't know the prisoners were on board. Father Lafleur was last seen repeatedly diving back down into the water to save soldiers from drowning. I encourage people to do an internet search to learn more about this brave holy man and future saint. And thank you very much, Nicholas, for uh, bringing uh, him to our attention. And people can indeed uh, look him up and uh, pray if they choose concerning his canonization. Uh, Father Horton sent an email who said uh, the mention of Harry Dexter White made me wonder if Whitaker Chambers slash Alger Hiss is one of the 1500 items, maybe more than that, on the mysterious it's more than that <laughs> yeah, on the mysterious to do list. I also noticed that Jimmy didn't actually deny being an interdimensional robot instead of changing instead changing the subject to Time Lords. Well, um, concerning robots and time lords, I mean, I can just give I can only give the Glomar response. I can neither confirm nor deny <laughs> uh, in terms of Whitaker Chambers and Alger Hiss. Uh, they are uh, on the list, uh, as are the Rosenbergs, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, Klaus Fuchs, the Venona Decrypts and more Cold War goodness. Excellent. Uh, Jeremy Smith wrote on YouTube. Hi, Jimmy. Thank you for another great two-part episode. However, I did notice an error. In both the first and second parts, you said that the Soviets lost the Russo-Japanese War to the Japanese. I paraphrase that. The Russo-Japanese War ended in 1905, and the Soviet Union wasn't formed until after the 1917 Russian revolutions. And you're quite correct. Um, the um, it's It can be a challenge when you're banging through a script to keep exactly when a war ended and when the Soviet Union began straight relative to each other. So is a slip of the tongue. Uh, then our next feedback comes from episodes 186 and 187, Weird Questions. Samuel Varg wrote on Facebook, Howdy, 
I have a Trekkie question about the eternal soul and time. In the Star Trek Voyager episodes Year of Hell, Part 1 and 2, the villain Anorax's time ship can erase things from history, causing them to have never existed in the first place. If a human or alien with an eternal soul would be hit with this time weapon, what would happen with the soul? Does it cease to exist, never having existed in first place? Or does only the body die when its existence and the soul goes to heaven or hell? Also, since timelines can be restored in Star Trek, people who have been erased from time can come back into time. Would that person's soul be taken back from heaven or hell and back into our space-time? So um, it's going to depend on the way time travel works. Now, if you can really rewrite history without creating a branching timeline, then you're going to run smack into the grandfather paradox. Um, and so the the two solutions that are typically offered to avoid the grandfather paradox are um, either you can't change history at all, you can only fulfill it, or you create a branching timeline. And if you can't change history at all, then there's no problem here because nobody ever gets deleted from history or restored to history or sent down an alternative timeline. On the other hand, if you suppose that we can cause branching timelines, so let's suppose that uh, that you're 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 on a branched timeline and you commit a mortal sin and you die. Well, okay, you would go to hell in that timeline. But then suppose someone creates another timeline that branches off of that one where you are saved from dying and you go to confession and you're back in a state of grace and then you die. Well, you go to heaven in that second branched timeline. And so how would we explain this in terms of in terms of uh, metaphysics, in terms of what's going on on the level of the soul? The obvious way, I mean, if those if, if the facts are if you die in mortal sin, you go to hell. If you die in a state of grace, you go to heaven. Well, if in one timeline you die in mortal sin, you're going to go to hell. If in another timeline you die in a state of grace, you're going to go to heaven. Um the logical way to explain that to my mind would be to say, well, when timelines branch, if timelines branch, when timelines branch, so do people. And so there's an alternate version of you with its own soul that either goes to heaven or hell for each timeline. Excellent. Our next feedback is from on the bonus Christmas 2021 live stream special that Jimmy did on Christmas Day. And this comes from Logan Kimball on Facebook, who wrote, Awesome. Thanks, Jimmy. I think I'll just cancel my plans with my family and remote view their traditional Christmas party, which I'll, while I tune into this live stream. <laughs> well, I hope that worked out well for you, Logan. And I'm thinking of making it an annual tradition of doing an alone together for Christmas uh, live stream so that people who don't have anyone to be with can hang out with me or people who just want to hang out can hang out with me and with each other on Christmas. Awesome. Our next feedback is from our episode 188. It's always demons and it's video feedback from Andrew from Budapest. And uh, first off, I'd like to thank you for your work. Your program, Jamaican's Mysterious World, has provided hours of enlightenment, entertainment, intrigue, and, um, and all around fun. I discovered the program about a year ago. And today I moved from being a backer 
to a donor. So I thought I'd I'd celebrate by sending you a message of thanks from Budapest, Hungary, here in Europe. And um, and I thought I'd give some feedback. I haven't yet. All in all, I have to say, wow, I have a lot of fun and, and really, really like the programming. It took me, uh, I think, until September listening to three or four podcasts a week to catch up. And since then, I look forward to the new podcast every week. The last, the last one I listened to, I'm oh, sorry, before the Hindenburg was It's Always Demons. And that, and finally, I something where I say, oh, I disagree a little bit. And actually, it's not so much a disagreement as uh, what I found lacking. What I found lacking, Jimmy, was uh, your, your lack of referencing to exorcists. There are some wonderful, reputable, uh, diocesan, archdiocesan-approved uh, exorcists who have uh, published books, who have presentations, sermons, homilies on YouTube. And I find their input very interesting. And I think in today's age, maybe it's just simply a different um, church ecclesial milieu that I live in. Uh, It's not so much that we see demons and the devil under every rock, but more it doesn't exist. It's some sort of medieval superstition and nothing much that we should be concerned about. Uh, another reference I think is is worth sharing is uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Screw Tape Letters, uh, a great read, a fun read, and and brilliant spiritual insight. Thank you so much, guys. Keep up the good work, and and hopefully I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll send you some more information. So bye bye from from Europe, from Budapest, from Hungary. Uh, thank you very much, Andrew, for uh, your uh, kind words and for your support of the show. Um, the reason, and it's fine that you disagree. I never expect everybody to agree with me. Um, the reason that we don't have, uh, that I didn't talk more about particular exorcists and what they've said is sort of twofold. First, um, I haven't yet read a lot of exorcist literature, but I am doing some reading in it and, I, uh, you know, I'm going to test it, uh, sort the wheat from the chaff and include the wheat in future shows. Um, I do have concerns, which I talked about in episode 188, um, about the way, about what I see coming from many exorcists. Uh, the first thing I see is that they tend to have a limited perspective where they think about everything in terms of angels and demons, and they don't look at other possibilities. Um, I mean, they will like, because the, 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 the right of exorcism forces them to think about like, well, could this be mental illness? But in terms of other things, they tend to think exclusively in terms of angels and demons, um, or at least their thinking tends to be colored by that paradigm. And so um, it's kind of, it's sort of an occupational hazard. If you, if your, if your job is, um, is, is driving out, if part of your job is driving out demons, it's kind of like being a carpenter, you know, if you've got a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And I find that many exorcists, including ones that I see speaking in public, are overly focused on the idea of its demons that they they diagnose or warn about demons too quickly 
and they warn that various phenomena will open you to demons when with in in situations where that is not a credible claim so i have yet to find um exorcists and i'm sure they're out there i just have yet to find an exorcist who's who i would consider to have good balanced judgment across a range of issues um that i would that i would want to quote and I, I, I'm, I'm sure there are such people. I don't know whether they're all the ones who are talking, though, who are putting them out themselves out in the media. Um, and but when I find people like that, I will definitely talk about them. And I agree. Uh, Screw tape letters is a great read. Um, uh, you mentioned the possibility, Andrew, of future feedback, which we would welcome. And perhaps in your future feedback, you could tell us whether you live in Buddha or in Pesht. Because a lot of people don't realize Budapest is a composite city made from two earlier cities, Buda and Pest. And I'd just be curious to know which side you live on. So thank you, Andrew. Excellent. And our next feedback comes from Eric, who left a voicemail on our mysterious feedback line. And this is what he had to say. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. This is Eric. I appreciated your episode on It's Always Demons. And it gave me some sobering food for thought. So I appreciate the elements you brought up, in particular about the dangers of imprudently ascribing demonic causes to other people's problems. But there was one statement that I think you need to do further research on, and that is, if you're not calling upon spirits, you're not opening yourself up to demons. This does not comport with my experience with the experience of priests I know in deliverance ministry, or with what I've read from exorcists. Have you run this past people who work with demons in ministry? Great show. Thanks so much. Thank you, Eric. I've known Eric for a long time, and I appreciate his feedback. Um, I can't speak to your experience with with demons, obviously, Eric. I, I can't speak to anybody's but my own. Um, in terms of uh, claims from people in deliverance ministry and exorcists, um, I, as I just indicated uh, to Andrew, I have yet to find people doing that kind of work that I have trust in. Um, I mean, I have a degree of trust in uh, in 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 such people. Um, if I knew of a case of a demonic possession, I would definitely bring in an exorcist. But in terms of their ability to comment more broadly on on issues, I find that they overdiagnose, and it's going to be even worse in people in deliverance ministry compared to people who are trained exorcists. Um, they overdiagnose demons. And so, um, so I, I think that, um, I, I will continue to do research in this area and to continue to talk to these people. I have talked to some, um, but I, I find that at least the ones who are making a splash in the press, whether that's writing a book or giving interviews on TV or YouTube, they tend to, they, they tend to be towards the sensationalistic end of things. Um, when it comes to opening yourself up to demons, now that's not biblical language. That's not language the church uses. Um, it's going to depend on what you mean by it. If you mean exposing yourself to temptation, well, okay, demons are sometimes involved in temptation. But even there, we don't want to give the um, 
we don't want to give the devil too much credit. The classic in theology, the classical three sources of sin are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if you're if you're opening yourself up to a temptation, well, you may just be opening yourself up to the world or the flesh, and the devil's nowhere on the scene in your particular temptation. So even even when people are opening themselves to temptation, well, there's there may be some kind of demonic involvement there, but it's not guaranteed. And it doesn't mean you're going to end up possessed just because you're you're toying with a temptation. Um, the kind of what people hear when they think I'm opening myself to demons, they're not thinking, oh, I may experience a little extra temptation. They're thinking demons may seize control of my life and I may be possessed. At least that's what a lot of people hear. And so when you tell people things like reading Harry Potter will make you open yourself to demons and you, they, they thinking, oh, I or my kids might get possessed and, you know, heads might start spinning around and pea soup might start being vomited and things like that. And no, that's not going to happen when you read Harry Potter unless it's the, unless someone has an intrinsic brokenness that is already there that would have been triggered by something else. Because just reading about, I mean, there, just reading about magic or fantasy magic or just reading about demons is not going to cause you to get possessed. Um, the Bible contains accounts of demons and magic, and you're not opening yourself to demons by reading the Bible. Well, if you're not, we thus do not need to be afraid that consuming media that has particular things is going to result in somebody being possessed, unless there's some kind of severe brokenness that is already there. And if you're one of those people who knows you, you are extremely tempted to worship demons or something, well, then, yeah, you shouldn't be reading this. You shouldn't be reading uh, or consuming media with those themes, including the parts of the Bible that do. If that's really something that's going to tempt you, well, then just avoid it. But this is that's someone with a special brokenness that is not ordinary people. And it is um, it is it unnecessarily terrifies people to tell them that they are opening themselves to demons the way that's going to be popularly interpreted um, just because they read Lord of the Rings or something like that. Our next feedback comes from Roy Vega, who sent an email and said, uh, Jimmy, I appreciated your dissertation on demonology, but found it lacking. Your theological exegesis focused entirely on demonic possession and overlooked completely the subject of spiritual warfare, which by definition involves the effect and influence of evil forces in the material wor world short of demonic possession. It is in this context of spiritual warfare that Pope St. John Paul II's calling out of the culture of death has substance. Would you explore this aspect of demonology? Oh, I'm happy to explore it in the future. Um, like I said, 188 was a foundational episode to set parameters for things that will be explored in more depth in the future. And um, and I I wanted to begin by talking about possession and extraordinary manifestations of the demonic, because that's where people's go, people's minds go first. So I wanted to go for that issue first. And in the future, we can talk about common garden variety interaction with the angelic and the demonic, like in spiritual warfare, the stuff that goes on all the time, but that doesn't involve extraordinary manifestations. Uh, Tristram Carlyle on Patreon wrote, 
So funny to think that you guys think that there's a bias towards over-assessing the demonic as answer for explaining mysterious or weird phenomena. Are you sure you, you guys aren't traveling too much in Catholic circles? In today's society, it seems to me that the overarching reason behind everything is reason to be psychological or scientific in nature or reasoning, and only very rarely a demonic one, at least when it comes to things involving people. I bet 95% of all psychologists don't even believe in the demonic, much less think of it as a reason for something strange happening to a person or place. Well, I agree with you. Um, you know, most people in, in, in or I don't I can't say most people because I haven't actually seen the polling data, but a large number of people are very dismissive in America and Europe of the idea of demons including various churchmen. And so, yeah, I'm d very much aware of that, but that's not the audience I was trying to reach in that episode. Um, the audience I was trying to reach was the audience that is more inclined to automatically assume something is a demon and say, wait, we need to, we need to test this. We need to be careful about this. Um, I was talking to um, a deacon in a very large diocese. I won't say where, but I was talking to a deacon in a very large diocese um, who par who participates in that diocese's exorcism ministry. I mean, being a deacon, he can't perform the exorcism himself, but he frequently interviews people who are candidates for exorcisms, and he provides assistance to the priests performing exorcisms and things like that. And he he's directly engaged in the work in a very large diocese, and he, even by his estimation, possessions are very rare. Um, he estimated that like in 20 years of doing the work, I think he said he'd encountered five cases of full-blown possession. I mean, he'd obviously encountered lesser phenomena, but possession itself is, is, is not as common as people think, and therefore not as much of a danger as people think. Uh, Jonathan Lane uh, sent a message via Patreon, and he said, uh, would be curious on Jimmy's thoughts on listening to music where the musician purports to be in touch with the demonic in the creation of the music. Are there, based on what, uh, I'm trying to think, based on what they openly claim to be, to be avoided, and are not a judgment call on the listener's behalf? To Jimmy's point that one cannot accidentally summon a demon, I'm not asking whether the unwitting listener could inadvertently be influenced by the demonic, but once the listener knows what the artist claims the music to be, is it then inadvisable to still listen? So if a music artist says, oh, I consulted the devil when writing my music, I'm going to think my first thought is, OK, that's probably just publicity. He, he, he probably the devil had no idea, you know, or if, if anyone in the demonic realm did, it was some little flunky. Um, but the idea that 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 the, that demons played any role in composing this guy's music is probably probably pretty low. Um, he's probably just claiming this for publicity purposes, or maybe he's sincere, but uh, that doesn't affect the music itself. I mean, as long as the music isn't saying hail Satan and stuff like that, um, the music itself is not problematic um, any more than, you know, if someone was a, if let's say Bach was um, secretly a, you know, a mass murderer. Well, okay, he, he would have been a bad guy then, but that doesn't make his music suffer for that. In the same way, if someone is a Satanist and they produce otherwise quality music, well, the music doesn't isn't harmed by that. It doesn't become in. It's not tainted by the source. 
to argue that it would be would be the genetic fallacy, judging something on where it came from rather than on what qualities it has. Um, and certainly in history, there have been claims about music, like in starting in the 1950s when rock and roll was getting popular, you had people saying, oh, it's the devil's music, you should not listen to rock and roll. Um, sometimes, you know, a lot of rock songs would use two-two timing. That's that boom, chuck, boom, chuck, boom, chuck sound. And you would have people saying, oh, that's the devil's beat. Well, the music itself won't hurt you. I mean, it, 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 the lyrics also will not hurt you unless if you're strong in your faith, then you can separate the wheat from the chaff. Just use critical thinking with music like you would with anything else. Um, I think it would be advisable for an ordinary person to avoid songs that are openly praising the devil, even if they're even if they personally have no temptation towards that. I mean, why would you want to be listening to that? You know, you know, so I would certainly I would avoid that other. But if you can, if you're strong in your faith, you know, it's not going to harm you any more than reading the reading the account of the temptation in the wilderness where the devil's going, oh, you worship me, I'll give you all this stuff. Well, if you can read that, you know, uh, or see it in a movie without it being a problem for you, then you can you can see equivalent things in other media. I just personally wouldn't have any interest in it. Um, also, even if the music were fine in itself, it, just the fact that uh, that someone is claiming to be a Satanist, you know, is something I'm going to find distasteful. I may not want to listen to the music for that reason. Just like if I learned Bach was a serial killer on the side, I might not want to listen to Bach's music anymore. Not because there's anything wrong with the music or anything dangerous with the music, just because it's going to bring up unpleasant associations. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we do need to avoid the genetic fallacy of judging that thing's evil because of where it came from. Um, that's, that's a logical mistake to do that. You want to look at the qualities of the thing itself and not judge it based on who invented it or who wrote it or where it came from. Um, those issues need to be kept separate. But if, you know, someone's doing something distasteful, then by all means, you know, don't feel any need to uh, expose yourself to their, to their media. Agent JSO9 writes on YouTube, as someone who grew up in a semi-fundamentalist evangelical home, I'm quite familiar with the It's Always Demons culture, and I have known people who were legitimately driven away from Christianity in part by that very attitude, as Jimmy has said. There's even a satire movie called Dark Dungeons that was created to make fun of the It's Always Demons culture. The guidelines Jimmy gives are extremely helpful. I will definitely be sharing with those with others the next time Harry Potter or Dungeons and Dragons comes up in my conversations with friends. Thank you, Agent JSO9. I'm glad you found it helpful. Melissa Mick, Mick Incognito on Facebook writes, I worked for the Pasqua Yaki tribe when the child was killed during an exorcism. It was devastating to the community. I'm also a substance abuse therapist. Drugs, specifically meth, can be a huge factor in perception seeing things when they're not there, like demons leading to actions people might not do when in their right mind. Just a thought about another aspect of these terrible atrocities. Love this podcast. I've learned so much. Thank you, Melissa Mick. 
<laughs> Such a cool name, but hard to say if you're not practiced on it. Melissa McIncognito. Um, and uh, uh, thank you for uh, bringing up uh, the role the drugs can also play in this, because drugs are another thing that can either be misdiagnosed as demons or can be um, can distort the judgment of someone making a judgment about whether something is demons. Chris Hagen wrote on Facebook, my sons and I listened to every episode on our long drive to school. After this episode, my son wanted to confirm that wanted me to confirm that using a Ouija board is likely opening yourself up to demons if you invoke a spirit to move the planchette. Okay, so this does involve invoking spirits if you're using a Ouija board in that way. Um, And you don't know what kind of spirit you're going to get. It could be a demon. On the other hand, it could be something else because um, not every spirit is a demon. And we do see, even in the Bible, instances of God allowing the dead to communicate with the living. Um, Sometimes, you know, that happens with saints, but it can also happen with, with other people, potentially. So you are taking a risk. Now, that's not the same thing as saying you're likely opening yourself up to demons. You are, if you're using a Ouija board, you are possibly doing that because you are opening yourself up to spirits and you might get a demon. But much of the time, it's not even going to be a spirit. Much of the time, the motion of the planchette on a Ouija board is going to be purely natural. There is a phenomenon known, and I don't have one here, I would demonstrate it. There's a phenomenon known as the idiomotor effect, whereby your subconscious causes small movements in your hands. Um, I, I And a, a great illustration of this, I, I plan to do this as a demonstration on the show one day. Um, I just don't have a pendulum with me, but I can take a pendulum. And without trying I can just think I want it to swing left and right, and it'll start swinging left and right. And then I can think I want it to move forward and back, and it will start going forward and back. And I can just think I want it to go clockwise, and it will start going clockwise. Or I can think I want it to go counterclockwise, and it will start going counterclockwise. Or I can think I want it to stop, and it will stop. And I'm not consciously using my hand to do any of those things, but my subconscious, based on my conscious intention for what I want the pendulum to do, sends uh, subconscious signals that move my hand in very subtle ways without me being aware of it that cause the pendulum to do all those things. And, um, and, and this is known as the idiomotor effect. It's a purely natural phenomenon. Anybody is capable of doing it. It does not involve spirits. It's just your brain is sending signals to your hand to make slight adjustments to achieve the effect you want. And so the idiomotor effect doesn't just apply to pendulums. It applies to dowsing rods. It applies to Ouija boards. It it applies to table tipping and all kinds of things where you have one person or a group of people and they're wanting to get a yes or let's say it's a yes or no question to make it simple out of a Ouija board. Um, Well, there's a yes and there's a no. And if they put their hands on the planchette and they're thinking, oh, we want an answer on this one, their subconsciouses are going to use the idiomotor effect to get that planchette over to either the yes or the no. 
and it, they're not talking to a spirit at all. They're, it's just their subconsciouses expressing, arriving at some kind of collective decision through push and pull on the planchette of where it's going to go. And so, um, so yeah, with, if you're using a Ouija board and you're asking a spirit to help you, well, you are opening yourself to spirits and some spirits are demons, but also a spirit may not show up at all. And the results you get usually are probably just due to the idiomotor effect. Okay. Francisco Lopez writes on Facebook, how about sometimes it could be demons? Oh, sometimes it is demons. I don't I don't want to dismiss that at all. Demons are real and they are a threat that needs to be taken seriously. We just don't want the threat to be overestimated. Uh, Nick Medley sent an email. Thank you so much for the recent episode on the demonic. It personally helped alleviate paranoia regarding if there was demonic influence in certain scenarios. Praise be to God. One question I had. I've heard it stated that pornography can open oneself up to the demonic. It would seem that porn is an image, at least, of idolatry. Of course, it is a, grace, a grave offense to be avoided at all costs, but is it a possible portal to the demonic? Well, uh, first of all, Nick, thank, it, uh, thank God it helped. I'm really glad that it brought you some relief. Um, in terms of, of pornography, this is, this is a straightforward application of the principles we were talking about. When, you, when a person exposes uh, himself to pornography, he's opening himself up to temptation and sin. But like we said, not every sin is caused by the devil. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil, three classic causes of sin. Um, well, this is one of, of opening yourself up. Porn is a situation of opening yourself up to temptations of the flesh. So if you're, if you're thinking of the world, the flesh, and the devil— the flesh is the one that porn is involved is directly involved with. So you shouldn't expect demonic involvement in this scenario. It is still to be avoided because it's a mortal sin. But no, looking yourself, looking at pornography is opening yourself to temptation and it's opening yourself to sins of the flesh. But it is not opening yourself up to the devil in any in any concrete way. Sarah Morell writes via email. I really like this episode. As someone who deals with depression and anxiety and sometimes intrusive thoughts, there have definitely been times when I've heard feared demons around me. One time in particular caused me an immense amount of fear. But once I realized that thoughts, even disturbing ones, are just thoughts and can't hurt me, I felt so much better. I also liked what you had to say about reasonable risk taking. That's definitely something we need to follow during the pandemic. If we let fear drive our lives, it's not really living anymore. Thanks for doing this episode. It was very insightful. Thank you, Sarah. I'm glad it was helpful. And I know from speaking with lots of people with anxiety that um, that if they if they don't adopt for themselves reasonable guidelines, meaning guidelines that are formed based on reason, then they can then anxiety can run wild and they can live cowering under a rock. It can stop. It can cause them immense torture and immense pain. And thinking that there is a demon around you constantly is a terrifying thought. So um, so that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode to help people who have such concerns be reassured that, yeah, demons are real, but they're kind of like bears. You know, bear encounters are real and they're dangerous, but they're they're not waiting to happen every time you have a bad thought. 
or something like that. Um, you're not, you, you, if you're living in a normal city, merely going out of your house and going to the store or going to work or going to the movies is not going to get you attacked by a bear. And in the same way, it's not going to cause an overt demonic manifestation. May you get tempted from time to time? Sure, but you're going to get tempted from time to time anyway. So it's, there's no point in worrying about, is this temptation coming from demons? Um, I don't care whether the temptation is coming from a demon or from the flesh or from the world. Ignore the temptation and move on is all you need to do. You don't need to worry about determining what its exact cause was. So, um, so yeah, I meant the episode to be empowering and reassuring for people. And I hope I'm glad that it, uh, that it was helpful. Anonymous sent an email. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. Your recent episode on demons was excellent and needed at this time. I spent a few years when I was younger affiliated with various traditionalist groups with no regular status in the church. I eventually reconciled, thank God, and one of the first things I did afterwards was go to a talk given by the exorcist of the diocese I was living in at the time. This priest, despite being a diocesan priest in good standing, said things that were more self-evidently pants-on-head crazy than anything I ever heard in outer trad world. For example, ordinary playing cards having occult symbolism, and one could be possessed after simply playing with them, things of that nature. This was a large scandal for me, and I wondered what was the point of going to canonically regular masses if those priests were nuts, or at least said crazy things with no checks on them. Eventually, of course, I got over it, but that was a serious hit for me. Keep up the good work. And thank you very much, Anonymous. Um, I I also have known people who had similar aversions to cards. In fact, my uh, uh, my father's father um, had a card table that he once loaned to the minister of his local church, and the card table, being a table for cards, had like little cards painted on the corners of the table. And when he got the table back from his minister, the cards had been painted over because apparently they were demonic or something like that. So, yeah, that claim has been out there and it is pants on head crazy. Um, Ordinary playing cards are not demonic and you're not going to be you're not going to be possessed because you're playing go fish uh, or bridge or whatever it may be. Um, And, yeah, it does. Like Paul says, you know, uh, God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You can. by acting ridiculous, like the church lady, meaning ridiculous, meaning worthy of ridicule, you can bring disrepute on God by overdosing, di- overdo- overdiagnosing demons left and right. And um, and so I understand your reaction to this priest. And I have to say, this is characteristic of now, not every exorcist is making this claim, but this is characteristic of of what I see among many exorcists. They make excessive claims. They are not using uh, the kind of critical thinking that I try to use on Mysterious World to carefully distinguish between things. They're operating on some kind of fail-safe principle that's excessive of if there's any chance that someone might have a particular form of brokenness that could lead to bad results, just stay away from this thing altogether. And, and if, you, if you shun risk, rather than manage risk, you will live up living under a rock. It will harm your personal and spiritual development if you were cowering in fear instead of relying on God and his protection and his love and going out and living normally. 
Uh, Matt Welsh sent an email. First time feedback provider here. Yay. Hey, great show using logic and biblical citations to provide truth on this topic that I personally have heard many lies about. As a result, I've become victim to scrupulosity and paranoia. Hearing your explanations on the matter proved to be therapeutic to a degree and helped bring great peace to my mind. Thank you, Jimmy and Dom. Thank you, Matt. Uh, so glad that uh, so glad that it was helpful, and I hope the comments today have been helpful as well. Now we have feedback from episode 189, the Hindenburg disaster, and Jim Burke writes on Facebook, I hadn't heard the detail about the four-minute delay from the moment of making contact with the ground equipment. That does make the story quite different, even if it still ends up being pretty similar in cause as I thought. But the possible cover-up didn't make sense. I never heard of that before, so it must not be true. Oh, that's how cover-ups work. That was a rather interesting piece that I hadn't heard, but makes sense. So what Jim is referring to is the fact that um, the Hindenburg's ropes in the rain hit the ground, and then four minutes later, the Hindenburg blew up. And the theory is that once the Hindenburg was grounded, it allowed electricity to flow um, and basically, and because that, I won't go through all the details, but basically the Hindenburg became a giant capacitor. And when the inner, when the electricity built up to a certain point, it jumped the gap and caused a hydrogen leak to burst into flame. And that's what caused the disaster. And this hydrogen leak itself was something that was a known possibility because of a design flaw that had previously been discovered. And then the company afterwards and the German government did not want to admit they knew about this design flaw. And so there was a cover up. Nicholas Genio on Facebook writes, I'm just 30 minutes in, but I'm loving it so far. I listen to the show while exercising, so I have to break it into parts, but at least it gives me something to look forward to for multiple days. Thanks, guys. By the way, as well known as the Hindenburg disaster is, I think that there is a serious challenger to the unenviable title of most famous air disaster of the 20th century. Well, certainly that's possible. There could indeed be a serious challenger to to the Hindenburg as most famous air disaster. Francisco Hinojosa writes via email, this was a great episode. I've been very interested in this story since I was small and was super excited when I heard this episode was coming out. I'd never heard the design flaw theory until this episode, so this was mind-blowing. One question, though, you said that the Graf Zeppelin II was a spy vessel. How can a Zeppelin do spying since they're big and kind of obvious ships? Well, what you do is you go up in your Zeppelin and you get close to the as close as you can safely to the area you want to spy on. And then you point telescopes and cameras down at it at an angle. And and if you're not in active wartime, you can gather reconnaissance that way. Even if you are in active wartime, if you have fighter planes escorting you, you can have a stable platform from which you can take pictures that's protected by your escort. Um, and, and you can get pictures in a way that your escort can't because they have to be moving around, whereas you can provide a stable platform for cameras. Yeah, they do this today with uh, there are big airplanes that fly or spy planes that fly along coastlines and take pictures mm-hmm. of things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And t- today we also have much faster cameras. So if you want, you could, you know, take your YouTube and zoom over Cuba really quickly and take lots of pictures of it as you're as you're doing that quick zoom over. That's right. 
All right. And our next feedback is some audio feedback. Hi, Jimmy Aiken and Dom. This is Dan and Lloyd. My, na- my name's Lloyd and I'm from 10 years old. We live in uh, Baltimore City and we're big fans of the show. We especially liked the Hindenburg disaster. So we listened to it together and um, it made us think of a song that we know. Uh, it's a song by a band called the Two Man Gentleman Band called the Hindenburg Disaster. So we're going to uh, include that in this email that we sent to you. And we just thought you would enjoy it. Anything else you want to say, Lloyd? That we like the Mysterious World episodes and we listen to them a lot. So thanks so much for all your hard work and uh, God bless. Okay, so thank you very much, uh, Dan and Lloyd. And uh, I looked up the Hindenburg Disaster song by the Two Man Two Man Gentleman Band. We'll have a link to it so that people can listen to it for themselves. But also, here's a bit of it right now, just so they can get a taste of it. So that seems like a really perky song <laughs> about awesome. a really, really sad event. But fortunately, <laughs> not everybody died. Only about a third of the people did. Yes, that's right. Two thirds survived. Yes. Uh, and uh, reminds me, that song reminds me a lot of the uh, They Might Be Giants. They have some excellent uh, fun uh-huh. songs like that. All right. So that does it for our feedback episode for this week. We would love to hear your feedback on on our feedback here or oh, on any of our shows. cursive, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Or feedback on any of our other episodes. And you can do that by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. You can send a tweet to at mys underscore world. And you can join our StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord or... Call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And uh, as promised, this Friday, we will be having our regular Friday episode, which will be patrons questions. So we'll be hearing new questions from lots of patrons on lots of interesting subjects. Excellent. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>